Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. Scott Sickles is my guest today. Scott Sickles is a gay, neurodivergent, mixed-race Korean writer. He has received five consecutive Writers Guild of America awards on the writing team of the daytime serial General Hospital. Or should I say that six times in a row? We'll talk about more about that later on. As well, nine Emmy Award nominations for that series, as well as One Life to Live. For 30 years, his plays have been performed in New York City, his native city of Pittsburgh, all across the United States, as well as internationally. Scott has written many plays. One happens to be a biographical drama named Nonsense and Beauty, chronicling the private life of E.M. Forster, which was named the winner of the 2016 Dayton Playhouse Future Fest. Later on, his drama Composure won the 2016 New York Innovative Theatre Award for original full-length script and was a finalist for the 2018 Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ drama. And even more, he also received the 1999 Beverly Hills Theatre Guild Julia Harris Playwriting Award for Lightning from Heaven. He's got a great story. This comes across in his plays. This comes across in his writing. I want you to learn more about him. He has a great story. You need to know it. In addition to everything, Scott does hold a Master of Fine Arts in Playwriting and is a member of the Dramatist Guild and the New Play Exchange. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, we talked to Scott Sickles about his life, his writing, life in Landview and Port Charles, plus whatever we get to. Before I get, I bring Scott to your listening ears, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is a weekly video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people found within our rainbow community. By listening to our stories, we gain insight, understanding, and connection. So let's continue to connect while being introduced to amazing people and their stories. This episode has been recorded live, so do expect technical hiccups, voice snafus, and other unexpected hijinks as it likely has happened. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the other audio platforms, be sure that you do hit subscribe, leave us a star rating, a message, a review that helps us with the algorithms. And if you're watching on, on YouTube, be sure to hit the subscribe button, receive notifications. More stories are coming up. I'm based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And it's important for me to say that as I would like to acknowledge that I'm living within Treaty 6 territory and within the Métis homelands and Métis Nation of Alberta Region 4, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, and Dene. I acknowledge all the many First Nations 
Métis Inuits whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries. I'm grateful for the traditional knowledge people and I am I am grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those who have come before. I continue to open myself up to learning, to listen, and to understand. And I hope you continue to join me on this journey as we learn truth. I make this acknowledgement as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory we reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, is Scott Stickles, and it's now time to bring him up onto our screen, as well as your listening ears. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Hello, and welcome to my home. Yes, it's great. It's a long time coming. Where are you at the moment? Are you in New York? I am in New York City. I am in um, Forest Hills, Queens, on the ancestral lands of the Canarsie. But uh, yeah, which is fortunately easy to remember because Canarsie is also a neighborhood in Brooklyn, probably named after the people whose land they stole. There's a lot of history here, obviously, and it's good to acknowledge where we are and who was here first. I absolutely agree. I'm hoping others in the United States, as well as Canada, wherever people are listening, do take the time to learn and understand. It's so needed. It's absolutely needed. How long have you been based in New York? 20, 25 years. I moved here in uh, 1996, and uh, I've always lived in Queens. I was in the East Elmhurst neighborhood for a while, which is, as you can tell by the name, north of Elmhurst. And Elmhurst is where, at the beginning of the pandemic, the epicenter of the epicenter was. And I'm actually about two miles, 2.2 miles away from right now from Elmhurst Hospital, where all the news about putting the bodies of COVID victims in refrigerator trucks were. So it's been an intense couple of years. It was especially intense then. But these days, it's a little more normal. It's just everyone, pretty much everyone is on the street is wearing a mask. We're in the middle of, for those not watching right now, the Omicron surge while we're recording this. What's great is that with this podcast, I'm now able to create episodes, record episodes like the one we're doing tonight, and it's going to be put out a month from now or a month and a half from now. Mm -hmm. Today, though, is a very momentous day for you in a couple of different ways. Okay, yes. First of all, congratulations Uh on another writing nomination for General Hospital. And so now is this six for you or is there more than that? Well, we won five in a row, So, which actually is a record that nobody discusses, despite the fact I'm the only one who brings up that it's a record. In the category to win, we're the only show that has ever won five consecutive Writers Guild Awards for daytime drama. Now, granted, Ryan's Hope won four in a row, I think three or four times. So they've got everyone beat that way, but we're the first to win five. And granted, there were fewer shows on the air. We had less competition overall, but we still did it. It was a lovely acknowledgement, but that was 2014, 15, 16, 17, and 18. So it's been a couple years since we won one, but we've been steadily nominated for them for a while. So that's nice. And there's no guarantee that any one year will get nominated. So it's a nice winning streak. And so far as the nominations are concerned, 
And I do remember one time, I think it was the third time we had won twice. And and I think there was one year that I, I didn't want to go because there was just no way we were going to win uh, three in a row. And then we did. And then the next year, I believe we were the only nominee. So I, I definitely went to that one because I was like, yeah, we're going to go up on stage. And uh, that was an honor. And uh, and then the following year, I went, even though there was no way to know who was going to win, it was fun to go because if we did win, we would break a record. And that was nice. And I remember that year when we won, I believe memory is serving me, MJ Rodriguez was the presenter. And that was uh, very thrilling. So it's like, oh my God, that's MJ. So that was nice. Yeah. Well, and also because you're based in New York and with General Hospital actually not being shot on the East Coast, but rather in Los Angeles. Yeah. has to be one of the few times that you're able to actually meet people who are on the set. Skilled Awards are in New York. Oh. I don't meet any. They're in New York and Los Angeles. They're not, they're not really broadcast. So okay. what's funny is that they are happening at roughly the same time. And the order, the, the awards are in the same order, but there are special awards uh, that are different on each coast. And we are told that we cannot announce, like we can't celebrate our victories online because our category might not have been announced on the other coast yet. And I, I don't know that anyone listens to that because there are times when people have found out on one coast or another that they had already won and it happens. It's fine. I, but yeah, no, we, I only get to meet people when I go to the Emmys where I haven't been in a few years, but when someone is a nine time Emmy nominee, that means they have lost nine times. Yes. And, um, yes. and I, I was tired of going and losing. So I was like, okay, you know what? I've had my Emmy experience. I had several of them and, I can find someone will text me, but it's a, it's a lot to go on one's own dime to go to Los Angeles. And I'm going to be there over a weekend and I'm going to stay for several more days to see friends. So that's, that's over. It's still expensive. Even with a good job, it's expensive to be there and and the lift cars and whatnot. And then the, the ceremony, I have to pay for my ticket to the Emmys. It is not a freebie. Wow. Um, yeah, I don't I know that I don't know how many free comps we get, but I'm not on that particular totem pole. So I I have to pay to go and watch the the show. And and it's funny. And what what people a lot of people don't know. I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but now I will. But when you win in a group category, you get one Emmy for that group. Everyone doesn't get an Emmy. You have to actually buy them. Now, you can't buy an Emmy for, for I can't just buy an Emmy for, for, for a year that I lost. You actually have to have won it, but or your team has. But no, you actually have to purchase your copy of the Emmy. Wow. But it is a real Emmy. It's yeah, not like a plastic nice. replica. Yes. So. Susan Lucci did eventually win. So there's hope yet. I will say that if I lose, 18 times. That means I will have been in this business for over 20 years. So that's okay. I would rather lose 18 times and ne I never win than like lose my job. That would be, or, or not be working because um, you know, like a cancellation is a difficult thing. And I'm lucky to have, I've been with the show. I will this February, probably by the time this this airs, I will have been with the show for 10 years. 
Well, congratulations. And that's nice. That's the longest job I've ever had. Before we talk more about General Hospital, which is the show that I was raised on. Oh, good. I do want to mention that it wasn't just the Writing Guild nomination today as well. Today is 10 years since One Life to Live left the airways. Yes. And that was the show where you were one of the key writers. You were giving the scripts, etc. So can you talk a little bit about how you came to be in Landview, <laughs> the city of One Life to Live? <laughs> yeah, it, it's, I'll try to, Landview, I was an all my children person. And I was unemployed one year and on my couch in my other apartment in East Elmhurst. And I'm watching all my children and I don't feel like moving or changing the channel and one life to live comes on. And it was one of the episodes where here's this woman, this very regal matriarchal woman talking to some trashy version of herself in the mirror. And that's when I was like, that's when I'm introduced to Vicky and Nikki. And then I get totally hooked and I'm totally mesmerized by the redhead who was Natalie Buchanan. And I'm totally, and I'm watching this multiple personality. I I can't stop watching at this point. It's because I've watched One Life to Live for five minutes and you can't twingles. And then I, and I'm watching Erica Slezak play this, these two characters and then some, and I, I am like, amazed at how much fun she seems to be having and just how glorious she is. And of course, it's not too long before I realized that, oh, this person I'm watching, this is multiple Emmy winner, Erica Slezak. And I immediately understand like, why? Well, so I get hooked on, um, on One Life to Live. Well, at one point, my agent, I was lucky, I'm lucky to have been agented for 25 years. And we were, a friend of mine had said, why don't you, why why don't you work in in soap operas? And I was like, why don't I just do that? I'll just call someone tomorrow and say, you know what, I'm going to start working in soap operas. But I I did call my agent and say, why don't we explore this? And I I had tanked an interview uh, with an executive at NBC, Procter Gamble, for Another World a few years before. I just, I don't know. I didn't ask the right questions. It was perfectly pleasant, but I don't know. I tanked an interview. It didn't go anywhere. And then we got in touch with, uh, my agent got in touch with folks at ABC. And they were taking applications for the writer, uh, the ABC Daytime Writer Development Program. So fast forward, I wrote a sample script for them which is actually based on story outlines, breakdowns from the show that they're writing at the time. So there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of there. You take three months to write a break or, or a sample script because you're catching up on the show and catching up on the breakdowns they're writing that have not been shot or aired. And then at the end of that three months, you write an episode. So I write one of those, but they don't do the, the class the following year, but they are taking applications the following year. And I reapply. And I finally, long story short, I get into the 2003 class. It's an absolutely amazing experience. Malie Taggart Radcliffe is our teacher and she is stunning. And there's, that was in 2003. And this year, just as a quick side note, I'm being, a play of mine is being directed at the Gary Marshall Theater, a stage reading by uh, wonderful director Rob Nagel. And Rob says to me, oh, my mother-in-law says hello. And I'm like, what? And he says, my mother-in-law's Malie Taggart Radcliffe. I'm like, my God! The world is tiny. Exactly. The world is tiny. 
But ultimately, I end up writing some samples for all my children. I don't get in. And all my eggs are in that basket. So I'm actually at this point, like, destitute. And a lot of other stuff is going on health-wise, and it's just a nightmare. And fast forward to the good part. At one point, writers I met through the writer development program, one who was on the show and one who eventually got a job on the show, both write to me and say, you need to contact the network right now because it's time to write another sample for One Life to Live. Because I had had a trial with them before. It didn't go the way anyone wanted it to. Um, It was not the right time, whatever. But they say, now's the time to try again. So we get in touch with the VP at ABC. And she says, we have a lot of samples out right now, but check back again in a few months because we love your writing. I'm like, great, I'll do that. Within days, she writes me back and says, oh, you know how things in daytime can change on a dime. Can you do it now? And I'm like, absolutely. And then I let uh, my friends at the show know. And one of them says, I'm so glad because I was on the phone with our head writer over the weekend and I refused to hang up until he opened the email I sent him with your previous samples and started to read them. And I don't know that um, as long as I live, anyone will ever do a nicer thing for me. Uh, That's literally the moment that changed everything. And so I end up writing this script and by the time that three months is done and I turn it in and someone reads it, the the position's already full. It's already been filled. And I'm like, who, who did they hire instead of me? And I look up who it is and I'm like, and I'll say her name. I'll say, who is this Melissa Salmons person? And I look her up and has this amazing career. And I was like, fine. And I got to write with Melissa. And Melissa, I will say on the air for everyone to hear, and I've said this to her, she's probably forgotten, but I've said this to her, whenever I would write scripts for the show, before I would write my script, I would watch one of her episodes because that's how I would best, because I think she and I had a close enough sense of humor and a close enough voice where I'm like, that's what I want to be like. That's how I want this to sound. So she is a great inspiration for me. The job was no longer available. And then my agent uh, calls and says, your mother is Korean, right? I'm like, yes, why? There's a position at the Disney Job Bank in the diversity program for a producer in training, and they can just train that, change that to a writer's training program for you. And I said, do I have to apply for this? And she said, no, it's yours. So an incredible stroke of luck. And all of a sudden, re-examining any of my thoughts about diversity hiring. And it's just, and here I am. Okay, so I'm here. I'm a diversity hire. And that's when I got to spend a year in the writer's room at One Life to Live. And there is no more harrowing job in the universe than to be in a room with these whiteboards There are three whiteboards, each divided in the middle for six episodes total over the course of a week and um, that they write and staring at these blank boards. And the funny thing that happened my first day on the job is I'm there at 10. And what normally happens is at 10, we all gather. And then the head writer, who was Ron Carlovati at the time, Ron, he would come in and with uh, the executive producer and there was a network rep and, and we would all get notes. The breakdown team would get notes. And then there would be lunch and then the breakdown team would make their revisions. And then we would start talking about what would what was happening in the new episodes. This first, the first day I'm there, like nothing is happening for the first four hours. 
And Ron comes in and says, the network just canned uh, both of our major stories right now. We are not doing any of the things that we were going to do. So last time we left, Tessa, Jessica had just given birth and her other personality had just taken over and kidnapped the baby. Where is she heading now? Because she's not heading where we had her heading last week. And we had... I had never been more frightened of anything than I was of those whiteboards. And I I was just like, I didn't even have to say anything. It was just like in the room. But it was it was an extraordinary experience to, to be there for those meetings for uh, 51 weeks. And it was because I, I got to see how difficult it is to, to make that show. But that's, I've gone past the finish line. That's how I got to Landview. And after 51 weeks, they put me on staff as a regular script writer. I, I don't think people realize just how much work goes into doing a daytime no, show. It's five hours a week, every week, all year. And these scripts are not small. They're not being improvised. It's heavy work. So a question that I have for you is, mm-hmm. are you then in control of the entire episode with your writing or do, are you giving characters and you write out yeah. their story? Everybody asks that. And that's it would be impossible to write just character because, because the characters intermingle. They cross storylines. So everyone, each breakdown writer writes a full episode or two. And that's a detailed outline of what's going on in that episode. Characters, sets, whatever. And the scriptwriters, the week after those are written, the scriptwriters get them. And we, the best way I could, theater, musical theater people know this reference uh, better than anybody, but it's it's like being given a score and writing the orchestration. And and that's the, the fun part of it, because we're given scene by scene what's happening. And frequently there are full fleshed out conversations that are being described. And sometimes they are incredibly detailed and you know that someone wants this said. At other times, it's the gist of a conversation that's being described. And when you write it out as dialogue, it's not particularly speakable. But you take that and you make it speakable. I, I, I used to be the person who was like, I'm going to make a change. Is that OK? And after 10 years, I'm like, you know what? It's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. I'm just like, I've, and other shows, I'm lucky with One Life to Live and, and General Hospital in that they don't they want us to write the best uh, version of this breakdown and i'm always asked to write it long an episode is 36 minutes if you shot mine as written they would be an hour at least without commercials because i'm overwriting everything because i want to give my editor choices to 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 narrow things down and, and to tighten it up and things things change things you pour your heart into writing something and then the next thing every last bit of it's been changed i got compliments for writing some beautiful scenes between Carly and Jason before they they got married. And I was like, thank you. Not a single word of that was mine. Uh, Everything that I had written was, they had decided to go a different way with it. And I I presume Elizabeth Cordy, our editor, rewrote all of those scenes so beautifully because she knows the show infinitely better than I do. And she could weave that history into those characters. And I, I did my best and I did what was in the breakdown and I went from that. But there's a lot of collaboration and it's really... Uh, fascinating what stays and what what goes and who makes that choice or that decision. And part of what we as scriptwriters do is we make sure that the characters behave in the most consistent way. Our, our 
biggest challenges to we have to make sure that the story and the characters and their personalities and their voices flow from one episode to ours to the next without those episodes before or after having been written or at least read by us. And it has to be that way because people who are watching these shows, if the voice doesn't seem the same, people are simply going to go, ooh, that person has been replaced and it's a double and it's an evil twin or yeah, something yeah. in that regard. Yeah, or, or just why, why is this person, that doesn't sound like that person. And, and, and every now and then we're not perfect. We get it wrong, but it's fun. I remember writing one of the sample scripts for One Life to Live. And, and it's a thing that I learned in, in the, the training program called, apparently it's a technical term called protecting the character, making sure they behave the way they're supposed to behave. And there was a breakdown I got where Natalie and Jessica were talking and Jessica got angry and Natalie didn't know if that was Jessica or her violent, one of her violent alternate personalities. And in the breakdown, it said that that Natalie Blanche, Natalie is frightened and therefore she blanches. And I was like, Natalie, who grew up on her own on the streets of Atl- Atlantic City, is going to blanch? Hell, she is. And I wrote it. And this is not anything that was ever going to air. This was a, a sample. But I wrote her as picking up a cast iron skillet and ready to clock Jessica if she's Tess and dangerous. And, and that was fun. And that's the thing that you I, I like making sure that our characters, especially our the women, are such astonishing characters. You have your Alexis Davises and your Ava Jeromes and your, whoops, and your Laura Spencers and Tracy's back, and that's always fun. And, and I have to say, when we were bringing Brooklyn Quartermain back, I was like, I hate that character. Oh God, what am I, what are we going to do? And then it was announced that Amanda Sutton was playing her. And I I posted, I commented online. I'm like, oh my God, my job just got a billion times easier. (laughs) Yeah. She's one of those uh, actresses that can make a bitchy character. So lovable, relatable, and we can understand her completely. Oh yeah, yeah, and she's got this astonishing. And I've never met her. I, I, she's got this astonishing delivery. Where there were times when she was playing uh, Kim on One Life to Live, and I, I to this day, I'm, I'm like Kim and Cliff, Kim and Cliff, Kim and Clint, Kim and Clint. I wanted, I, I loved that relationship, but she, she has such a great deadpan delivery. Where we were like. Does she know how funny she is or is she just that skillful? I'm just like, I assume that she's just that skillful because she's so funny. But yeah, we do that. And every now and then you'll get a moment where like the men will do something or like they'll drop a towel or something and someone will blush. And I'm like, no, Anna Devane is not blushing at anything ever. So um, so, Well, daytime is great for roles for women that are fully fleshed out mm-hmm. and not just a woman being in the kitchen. It's a woman who has all of these complexities and it's fantastic for you as a writer, but it's fantastic for the actors, uh, actresses to be able to play these roles. I hope so. <laughs> I want to go back a little bit because it is 10 years since the end of yeah. One Life to Live. And it also All My Children was canceled at around the same time. And yeah, but they only got, um, they were only on on the air for, we were on the air for nine more months. They were on the air for six more months. Yeah. So, yeah. So they got the short shrift. So what do you remember about those final days with the cast and for what you were writing as well? I have um, very 
fond memories of those days uh, because I remember the day we got canceled because I was on vacation. I was on a working vacation. I was in Ocean City and I get this phone call. Can you hold for Ron Carlovati? And I'm like, sure, of course I can hold for Ron. And I thought this was a staff meeting because we were bringing Roger Howarth back to the show and we were going to do the whole story of two, the tale of two Todds, if you remember that. We had Trevor St. John. I'm going to just interrupt Todd Manning for people who want to quickly look up online. Yes, Todd Manning. And Roger Howarth had left the show years earlier and was replaced by Trevor St. John. Roger came back to the show and he was also Todd. So why were there two of them? And um, that was a fun mystery. The biggest mystery that was solved was uh, why I had to write so many really strangely uneventful, boring scenes because I didn't realize they were dummy scenes where we were like taking them out and putting Todd in later. They didn't tell us. So I was like, there were several scenes where I'm like, this is weird. Like nothing's happening in this whole. It was because they were going to be taken out, replaced with Todd scenes later. But I thought that was what it was about. And then Ron gets on the phone and says, so I guess by now you've all heard that ABC canceled all my children in one life to live today. And that's how I found out. But the next six months, we had six months to write and nine months of shows to air because we were three months script to air. And immediately the next thing that happens is there's an episode where at the end of the day, Roxanne Balsam played by the, uh, sui generis, a glorious Eileen Kristen lets out a blood curdling scream in the back of her scream in the back of her salon, and we find out what she's screaming at. There's an, a, a soap opera weekly that says Fraternity Row canceled, and Fraternity Row was the soap opera within the soap opera of One Life to Live. And we did an entire story because we were supposed to be canceled, but go moving online. Mm-hmm. And so we did an entire story about being canceled, the the soap opera within the soap opera being canceled and moving online. And one of the fun things I got to do that they they let me do was I got to write the episode where Roxanne passes out and wakes up in the world of Fraternity Row. So I actually got to write a Fraternity Row episode with a tremendous amount of male shirtlessness. And every time a a woman would, uh, this was not my joke, it was in the breakdown, Jean Passanante's brilliant breakdown, where anytime a woman would start to unbutton her, her shirt someone would say, no, that's gratuitous. But it had one of my favorite lines in a script that I was credited for that I, the line I did not write, which was Destiny was playing Irene Manning at the time. People will have to look all that up. But but she had this great line, which was, I was young, pregnant and alone. What choice did I have but to join a rogue branch of the CIA? (laughs) It's just... So we're making fun of ourselves left and right. And um, at one point, because that was a big thing, I also got to write the episode when Irene Manning explains why the two Todds existed. That was a lot of talking and a lot of backstory, but I, I had fun. I hope people enjoyed it. And and the actress who was playing Irene Manning, Barbara Rhodes, I believe uh, was is her name. She's magnificent. But we had a whole lot of stuff happening in undisclosed locations. And it was a tremendous a bit of fun where we actually had a sign on a door that said undisclosed location. And and at one point in the breakdown, someone says something about a rogue branch of the CIA and Todd's alter ego says, what's a rogue branch of the CIA? And Blair's supposed to respond, I don't know, but, and I'm like, oh no, she's not going to respond. I'm not giving her an I don't know. And the line I came up with was uh, a rogue branch of the CIA is an organization 
so clandestine that even this can't touch them, yet so brazen they have their own logo. So <laughs> I was and, having, and it would sound perfect coming from that character. It really would. That, they actually, I think Florencia Lozano Teo actually ended up with that line. So they, th- there were some interesting rewrites that happened. And it was, it, w- it was a fun episode to write. It was really just tremendous. But the best parts about that, the six months, were that up until then, we were always given notes from the network. The show has to be real and relatable. Because that's why people watch soap operas, for the realism. Ron has such a great imagination and I think like Days of Our Lives is the perfect outlet for that imagination because he's he writes soap opera and all caps and it's and this I think we were a little I think he was feeling a little hamstrung at the time you'd have to ask him I don't want to speak for him but but once we did not have the network breathing like looking at everything we're doing and making sure it was real and relatable we went nuts i started i got this breakdown one day where i noticed there's their characters there's tina and john McBain, and then i noticed baby liam and baby liam vo which is voiceover and then there tina had the dog david vickers and he was listed in the character breakdown as dv the dog and then i also saw dv the dog voiceover and I'm like, no. <laughs> and yes, indeed, the, the Shih Tzu and the baby. And whoever cast that baby, like, I think cast a clone of Michael Easton, who I've been writing for since 2009, and I've never met. But but it was just like that baby was so obviously John McBain's that I don't know why there was confusion. But there was an entire subplot where the dog and the baby were conspiring to hide the paternity tests. And I am insanely proud of being the person who wrote all of the first draft dialogue for the dog and the baby. <laughs> um, and people are like, really? Isn't that stupid? I'm like, no, it is not. You're stupid. It was genius. And, um, and um, it was just, it was the best time. And that dog was amazing. And I got to write for, for Tina Lord Roberts. And Andrea Evans is like one of the reasons I fell in love with soap operas in the first place when patty shot jack on on the young and the restless but that's a tangent but i'm back at at landview in the last days of landview and i posted about this you you may have seen it yesterday was the of course if today is the 10th anniversary of one life to live going off the air yesterday is the 10th anniversary of my final episode and it's interesting because you don't really know how things are going to impact people and you just want to do a good job but i'm given this breakdown and Vicky is introducing um, the final episode of Fraternity Row in Chris's beautiful, Chris Van Etten's beautiful breakdown. It was a history of soap opera and it was beautiful. But Ron asked me to make it. He said, just write a different speech with and just make it very personal. Why we love soap opera. And I wrote down all the reasons I love soap opera and put it in Vicky's voice. And I, I asked him, I'm like, do I need to keep the order of the scenes? And he's do whatever you want. So I wrote the speech and I reordered the scenes and and uh, and I'm the reason that apparently that that I, as I recall there were no scenes during that speech that took place where Ted King's character was being held hostage was he was he Luis Alcazar at the time I don't remember but he was an Alcazar I believe yeah. and one of his many Alcazars he was so fun but but he's being held captive and all of a sudden in 
in the area where he's being held captive, one of his captors is watching Vicky's speech on the air. I'm like, this is gold. I'm so glad they they kept this because I don't know what they're going to keep. And I actually thought I had written the speech long and they were going to just cut it down. And I'll be damned if they, they didn't kept pretty much every word. And that was amazing. And I just wanted to make sure that, that it was what Ron asked for. And it was what the show wanted. And then then we saw it. And there's Erica speaking. And there's the way it's cut together. And I was very careful in who who I I wanted seen whenever she said a specific thing. And I didn't know if they would keep those things. They're under no obligation to keep my camera direction. But they kept it. The one thing I really needed was and of course there it was not a, a big demand was when Vicky talks about how actors are replaced frequently by people who are very different from the people who played them before and I was like on Blair because Blair's character used to be Nia Corf who was Asian American and uh, th- there's a great flashback in an earlier episode where all of Asa Buchanan's wives are having flashbacks with Asa and there's Cassie DePaiva having a flashback and they cut to a clip of Nia, Nia Corf playing um playing Blair and then she's just we were a very irreverent show and we were very self-referential and that was incredible fun but how many years was one life to live on air for I think 42 yeah that's what I was thinking as well and I'm just as you're telling the story here I'm like for a show that was on air five days a week more or less all year 42 years you wrote one of the biggest scenes, the second last episode. That's huge. It's it's beloved. It's it, it has been referred to as iconic, and it's just it act. It's very moving to me. I, I wrote to Ron because I'm just so grateful that I that he asked me to do that. That it happened to be in the episode that I was writing, and that I was entrusted with it at all, and that that they liked it enough to to keep it down to its atoms and 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 that it means so much to people there was a friend of mine fritz brackeller who uh, works at uh, young and the restless he directed the aforementioned composure and he's just a great person but he was on a facebook group the focus of which is soap operas that are no longer on the air and it was today in soap opera history for yesterday and they referred to vicky giving a speech for the ages about soap operas and i was like oh my god that's you. So it's it's great that it means something to people, and I'm just um, honored to be that part of it. The two truly indelible things that I've done for in soap operas were write Vicky's speech, and I gave Ellie Trout her last name on 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 General Hospital, and I miss that actor. She's Emily Wilson. She's delightful. There's more with General Hospital too, because sure. I grew up with General Hospital. That was the show that. I realized that there were things on daytime and here in Canada, we had Mr. Dress Up in the mornings. And so I was lucky. I grew up in a small village and we were done school at about 2.40 every day. And in my area, General Hospital would be on at three o'clock. And if I wasn't outside playing with friends and all that, I would actually go home. We had three channels. And General Hospital was on the one that we could actually get good reception. Excellent. Yes. I don't know what was really happening, but I remember Lucy Coe was on trial for murder. I don't remember what things were, but I remember that. You are 
on General Hospital. Now, as you mentioned before, 10 years you've been on there. I didn't realize that you were a writer on General Hospital until one day it was on in the background. I look over and I see your name. (laughs) And then it was like, oh, I've got Scott on Facebook. Look this up here. And I will always connect you to a character who is supposed to be extremely bad, terrible. She had gotten married to Faison. But then over the years, she's become very likable. Part of that is because of her very witty personality and her cutting lines. Do we have you to thank for that character of Lisa Albrecht? I am in no way responsible for her creation, who we do have to thank actually is Tony Geary, because she was originally supposed to come on for two days as the evil head of that Swedish clinic where they were holding, I think they were holding Robin or the, and Luke and Anna had infiltrated it. And Tony really liked her and said, we've got a keeper. And then she shows up as Faison's girlfriend. And I was like, oh God, this evil woman again. And she, it was really fun, but I, I have no, no responsibility for her creation, but I do relish the days that I, I get her. And I especially relish the days that I get her and Anna because they just get to be mean to each other. And one of my favorite insults that I've ever written was Obrecht saying to Anna, your insults are as cheap as your pharmacy bought perfume. And I'm just very pleased with that. But Kathleen Gotti is, I met her at an Emmy after party and as her character as at the time was the most evil person on earth she is of course the nicest human being you will ever meet it always and, happens yeah it really is it's like what carrie fisher said about peter cushing she's it was so hard to hate him he was so nice <laughs> but but yeah kathleen is delightful and and it's really fun to come up with nasty things for her to say and whenever i'm writing for her there's like a good hour of the time that i'm writing for her where i will be looking up words in german by the time i see her saying them i'm like what the hell did that even mean but but every now and then someone will like the time that she called brad and whatever there's a german insult that means socks and sandals wearer and she called him that at one point and i just uh, my, my favorite obrechtism is when she has Peter all tied up and and she keeps calling him by his given name Heinrich and he's saying I you know reject that name the name my father gave me blah 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 and the line I gave her was if I choose to call you Flopsy Cottonbottom there is nothing you can do to stop me and of course with her fiery eyes and her her Swiss German accent it's just deadly hilarious She's brilliant in the role. It's it's so fun to watch. I do want to make mention of something just for people who are not in the know with characters and actors and all that. You mentioned Tony Geary. That's the real life name of Luke Spencer, Luke and Laura fame. There's people listening and going, oh, now I know. The guy with all the hair who, yeah, he was so famous for all that hair at the time. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's everybody stopped to watch. Uh, my mom will mention it over and over again that I was a little baby as she had to run home from university to watch it. 
like everybody else in the world for that wedding. I want to switch away a little bit because I could talk about General Hospital for ages, but I do want to bring something about you into it. There's one thing about soap operas over the years that has stuck in a negative way, and that's diversification. There has been some shows that have had African-American families. Young and the Restless has done a very good job with that. General Hospital, a little bit with the Ward family, but it wasn't, it's never been diversification as it perhaps should be. And part of who you are Mm -hmm. as a person, and you made mention of this with your mom being Korean, for yourself, you, is there influence or is there the desire to have a core Asian family, a core Korean family? And is that possible within the soap opera world that we have today? I think it's, in, in my opinion, it's difficult because soap operas are so much about families and there's so much about pre-existing families but we do have the ashfords and we do have sean butler and we sean and jordan and now and and curtis and curtis's father curtis's aunt stella who is it's there's some pretty powerful acting brooke kerr as as portia robinson her daughter trina we have a lot of african-american characters on our canvas right now and they're all complex and fascinating i'm loving it i i i know brad uh cooper brad cooper is a divisive character i found i i like brad a lot i was not a huge brad fan in the beginning because he was so sleazy but i love the way perry shen plays him with such unbridled gusto and perry and i we've we've met a couple of times uh, like at emmy after parties he's the nicest guy and he's got this lovely family and we uh, i I, we actually communicate a bit on facebook too but i really loved having a gay asian character on the show yeah exactly it's really awesome character with a very big storyline and not just be a token background character but being a driver within a storyline on general hospital that was huge. Yeah, he, yeah. He the the thing about one well, one of the most tired tropes on soap operas is the baby switch. So every time any soap, especially like our soap, does a, a baby switch, I want to know how we're doing it in a new and different way. I think, and and just to have that evil Nell, um, like poor Brad, the baby he adopted, Willow Tate's baby, dies of sudden infant death the day he takes this baby home. He's out of his mind with terror and grief and then runs into to Nell, who has just given birth in the woods with Dr. Obrick. As This is upstate New York. This is like a Tuesday in upstate New York. Yeah, exactly. About this is remarkable in Syracuse uh, but, um, or Rochester, but in the rest of the world, it's unusual. But yeah, there's Nell, who was just given um, birth on the side of the road after trying to blow up Michael. And, um, as one does. As one does. And she switches the babies with Brad. And we keep that ball in the air for quite a long time, actually. And and it's one of the soap opera things where there are always people say, why didn't you tell? You could have come clean at any time. It's yes, Brad could have told the mafia family he stole the baby from that he had stolen the baby. Why would he ever say that to the mafia family? But no. But yeah, but I love that Brad 
was there. And then Brad, of course, goes to prison for stealing the baby. And Brad is gone for quite some time. And then just recently, and of course, I'm getting this information in the breakdown. So it's, I'm getting it the way the audience gets it. I'm not a part of the decision-making process. But all of a sudden, I noticed that Miss Wu is no longer Miss Wu. Miss Wu is now Selena. She has and a first is, name. She has a first name. Dr. Obrecht is still Dr. Obrecht in our scripts, but uh, she is always our beloved Liesel. I love that. I think she's actually named after the Von Trapp child, but I don't know. But that's my theory. But but yeah, but the actress, uh, Lydia Look, who is just so compelling, and she's just, and also she's got that wonderful coldness to her mafia leader. And then there's that there's the, that scene you probably saw recently with Brad and Britt, and they're all at breakfast. And she's, and it is just a comedy goldmine with her and, and Perry and, and and Kelly, and and they're, it's just a joy to behold. But I'm glad that we have two Asians. Mm-hmm. And it was recently pointed out to me, it's, yes, we don't have any Latinos now that uh, Sabrina is dead and Carlos is dead and Carlos's twin took Sabrina's baby. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. Yeah, we, yeah, it's difficult, I think, because on one hand, you you have all these families. Uh, on the other hand, you are trying to be reflective of the community at large. But people often complain, or at least I have heard people complain, that our canvas is overstuffed, that we have too many goddamn characters. And that is a legitimate thing. It's like right here. I'm just busy making it work with do it as a small cog in that machine. We are all busy making it work. And again, it's just, and I think at, at this particular point, like you get rid of a character and, and, and parts of the story don't work as well. And and I think we're very lucky to have our veterans coming back that, that we have Scotty Baldwin in a romance right now where they are clearly people in their 60s are there language restrictions on your show? Oh, no, swear as yeah, much. People in their sixties, fucking yeah. It's just like and it's funny and going at it, and yeah. and yeah, and then it's just awesome, and and then Lucy Co. and and Martin Gray, and it's just. Uh, and I'll um, just say this for the all my children fans yes, watching who might be lapsed right now. Yes. Martin Gray is played by Michael E. Knight, and yes. who used to be Tad Martin on All My Children. And Ted, Ted, yes, with the brother who went upstairs and never came back downstairs ever again. I think they found his skeleton. Yes, at the very end, as they the very end, the skeleton with a baseball cap. Well, as nice. you were mentioning, sometimes there's characters that just don't work out, and there was yeah. that one character there was an older brother who was on the show for a while and he went upstairs and never came back and nobody ever mentioned him again no no it's chuck cunningham on happy days he's just gone yeah yeah i'm sure we've had a a few rosalie whatever happened to rosalie maria elena tobar got an emmy nomination she was it was great because rosalie ended up married to brad as a front but she was the latina character besides sabrina and what i loved is that sabrina and rosalie hated each other yeah. There was not this sisterhood bond that they did not like each other because Rosalie was a bad girl and Sabrina was a little bit prissy. And and they were both, I loved working with both of them. I loved writing for both of them. I don't think it was my episode if, if it was, but there was that beautiful episode where Sabrina and Patrick had their baby and the episode ended with Sabrina and Patrick listening to their baby's final heartbeats. And it just like, and like, 
And then, of course, we just had baby Liam Mike die. Just like Over Christmas, as over. the fans will be like, what was going on there? But that's what happens. People die at Christmas. Yeah. And that's, I can't speak to the timing, but, but yeah, I just, and we've just recast all of our kids. So, oh, that's Danny. Okay. That's Danny and Scouts. Okay. Good. 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 Oh, they, was it Sarast? Soap opera rock rapid. Yeah. yeah. Soap opera rapid aging syndrome, where we did source a few of the kids, which made sense because at one point, because we, I think it was because uh, we love Nicholas Bechtel so much. All of the kids that were his age, Cameron and Jocelyn, all got aged up, and he didn't for the longest time. Uh, but now he is, and we have Nicholas Chavez playing Spencer, and he's just doing a marvelous job. I believe it's his first acting job. I think well. it might be, yeah. he's. I, I think I'm almost certain it's his first professional acting job I, I may have read. But but he he's, it's, you learn on the job, and it's great. And he's, he's given great people to act with. I do want to say, since we were talking about veterans, just one thing that I absolutely, with One Life to Live and and One Life to Live and the cancellation of Guiding Light and As the World Turns happening while I was there, a lot of the actors from those shows came to to, to Landview. So I got to write for Jessica Leccia and, and Kim Zimmer. And I and like the list of like great soap opera divas I have been able to write for over the years with Starting with Erica Slezak and Robin Strasser, Robin Strasser, yeah. and then uh, and then moving forward to Nancy Lee Gran, and I don't care if I I probably do care, but I don't care if I never actually win an Emmy because writing the Who Was Alexis Davis episode is like one of the great honors of my career. I'm thrilled that I was again entrusted with that. Um, that was one of my next questions about, and I'll say this here as well with Nancy Lee Gran, we are a stan of her and. You can't say boo about her around me as the real life person because I have her on a pedestal. Uh, so let's talk about that. Who is Alexis Davis and celebrating 25 years of 25 years of Alexis Davis um, the character being on the show, being in a Cassadine, uh, going through the ups and downs that one would through the soap opera world, battling alcohol addiction for a second go around issues with the family. And then to celebrate 25 years, general hospital does an entire episode for this character. Yeah. And I give this over to you, Scott, tell us more about it. It was, I first of all, Alexis is a, a character I relate to because I'd like to think that, that on our best days, we have similar qualities. Mm -hmm. And I think her sense of humor and my sense of humor go very well together. And we both have a joke reflex in times of distress. And just uh, there's a, a line that I, I gave her in her conversations with Kevin. He says something about, so you're feeling additional stress over going to turning yourself in and going to Pentonville tomorrow. And the line I gave her uh, was something like, and somehow this baffles you. And it's it's a very her thing to say. And it's always interesting um, to see like how it is in my head and how it's played on the screen. And in my head, I realized at one point that I write very Protestant characters in the way they express emotion. It's very Jane Austen. It's very, my yes, I know my world is falling apart. Could you excuse me while I break down? 
this is not going to happen in a room with other people. And and that's so in my head, Alexis is keeping it together, but barely. And Nancy uh, was playing her as really she was yeah barely keeping it together but she was all frayed edges and it was just a beautiful interpretation so even like the knee-jerk joke reflex lines are coming out with this great complexity and that episode there are flashbacks to the night her mother to the affair that her mother had with her dad mikos Cass and I, please make sure I'm getting that. It's so embarrassing if I don't. But also, much is mentioned that Alexis witnessed, over the history of the show, Alexis witnessed Mikos' wife, Helena, cut her mother's throat. Alexis's mother bled out in front of her. And what I try to make sure I mention, and it doesn't often always make it to air, but Alexis's former husband, Julian, who is now dead, at one point threatened her at knife point with the dagger that was used to kill her mother. And I always want to make sure that when we talk about Julian threatening Alexis, it's with the dagger that was used to kill her mother. It wasn't just any knife. I, in writing the episode, put a lot of her history in there, knowing that it would be coming out. I didn't know what would be coming out, but I knew that a lot of it would be coming out. And I got to write a lot of great stuff that was given to me. It's not great because I made it great. I hope that I enhanced its greatness. But but it was a really compelling episode with a lot of great flashbacks to her childhood, to her mother's affair. There was so much in it that I loved and that I related to about how much abuse emotionally, physically, otherwise, are you as a human being going to put up with as you as a child are going to witness? How is this going to affect you? Because it's all about this character's choices. And this character has literally as much history as any living human being. More so because it's compressed. And and there there was an episode where I had the joy of writing a game of misery poker with her and Valentine, who had the worst life. And she's just like running the board because he's describing the worst things that happened to him. And she's like, ah, that's nothing. Yeah, exactly. That was a Tuesday. That was a Tuesday. Storytelling across any type of medium. Mm-hmm. When you know it's solid and when you know it's good is that... It rewards the longtime uh, viewers. It, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that to happen. That happened to the character, yeah. and and it draws things in. And like, it's excellent for a first time viewer who doesn't know anything about the character. Yeah. It draws you in, but then there's those extra layers, and that's one thing that I really enjoy about the soap opera form. When they do that, it and, is and so rewarding. It is very, and I, I try to make an effort to to do that. One of the things I wanted to mention just about that Alexis Davis episode is there was um, the girl who was playing young Alexis, young Natasha. Or, you know, everyone on our show has nine different names. It's like a Russian novel, but um, I'm totally ste- accidentally stealing a lyric from Natasha Pierre in the Great Comet of 1812. But in the breakdown and in my script, the younger Alexis is not in the psychiatrist's office with my ring light with, with Alexis and that was added during shooting apparently. Oh. So that was I believe uh Fido Xavier the director's contribution. I'm under the impression that was I always he's just awesome. But but yeah, so that was something that was added so that just goes to what an enormous collaboration writing so far. It is an assembly line. It is these people have the big ideas and then they break it down with the breakdown writers and then we write the script and then the script goes into production and it's rewritten and it's edited and it's shot and all these changes are made. But in that step-by-step, there is so much. We're all working on the same material to form a unified vision, and it's insane. Uh, I love it. 
far in advance is General Hospital? You mentioned One Life to Live was three months ahead. Yeah, so, we're two months ahead. We, we are two months script to air. Yeah, because we're writing March right now. So yeah, we're two months script to air, which is, I think, very reasonable. Because when you're writing, when, when a show is airing, and there are characters that the audience is just like not responding to, if you're course correcting, or if there's a story they're not responding to, and you're course correcting, well, they got three months of that before they even hit your first attempts to course correct. And, uh, and it's, I remember, it was A. Martinez's character, one life to live that people were not I mean, every, everybody loves a martinez and people were not liking this character and i think the tragedy of that character was by the time he went off the air i think everybody liked him by then. <laughs> but uh, at least I, I i i was loving him and but it's one of my favorite dorian lord moments where he's shot in the airport and she walks very calmly next to him you know, her heels clicking on the linoleum floor of the airport and she just says is he dead uh, oh yeah, it was. I, I did want to just give a, a shout out that that one of one of the great joys also is writing not only writing for Jeannie Francis, but mm-hmm. writing Laura in a post Luke world where where when um, when Tony Geary retired and we brought Jeannie back, she got to be like badass matriarch and no longer an excess his, his accessory. It was no That's longer. Right. I'll hold the gun on the Cassidyne while you do the heroics. It was. Elizabeth, you're ruining your life. You're about to do the following three things. No, you're not going to ask me questions. It's just, and and she got to be, and she got to be the mayor. And she's, so she's the town matriarch. And then we gave, gave her these two brothers. We gave her Martin and Cyrus. And I'm a China Beach fan. So I went nuts. It's like, oh, China <gasps> Beach. Yes. As, as Cyrus, is it uh, Jeff Cobra? I'm like, yes. I went nuts. Uh, now here's a question for you. Yeah, please. And I asked this on my Facebook, like, a year ago and nobody answered it is china beach on any of the streaming services because if there's a pandemic show i want to watch i would guess i don't know but i would guess it probably is for the same reason the days and nights of molly dog can't be fine anywhere they just don't have the music rights yeah like it's weird watching only season one of wkrp is available online and on dvd and if you like johnny fever will say and here is blondie with heart of glass and then you're like that ain't blondie that ain't hard of glass, but but yeah. So it's probably music rights. But I, mean, I have every episode of that show on VHS, mm. so I have them in my possession somewhere where they will remain. Because who can watch a VHS tape? Well, I, I actually have a VHS player that I'm afraid to use. I'm sure that somewhere in this place, I've got a VHS machine, and once one actually feels comfortable with life. I'm coming to New York, and we're do, doing a weekend at China Beach. That That's would be awesome. That was a great show. It just uh, it was when they when the theme music would start, you would just oh yeah, start the, the, the Supreme song. I I, I never yeah. not watched the opening credits of that show. You never skipped through it. No. Going into this interview with you, it was like, oh, let's talk about your writing and the, where it's coming from, and yeah. you know, we're going to have to do a part B because right now. I just want to talk about soap operas and all the cool things that come from it because it's amazing. So let's do a part B when we talk about you, the man, the life, the history. Okay, okay. sure. And so for the rest of this episode, we're just going to talk about soap operas sure, you know, for the days. next 10, 20 minutes or whatever. So you're watching Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. Today's guest is Scott Sickles. 
To find out more information about him, you can go to his website, www.scottsickles.com. You'll find out. Oh, oh, yes, Scott C. Sickles. Yes.com. Excellent. Thank you for that. I started to think who has the other one, but go on. (laughs) And also, Scott is a prolific uh, playwright, does amazing monologues, especially with that LGBTQ voice as well. We'll make sure that we put links for all of those plays. One thing that you can do is go to New Play Exchange. When you're there, it is a pay site. It is cheap every year. I think you mentioned about $6. It's so $6 to pay to read the scripts. Yeah. And when you're there, simply look for Scott Sickles. Yeah. And, and that's you'll $6 find a year, not $6 per script. It's $6. Exactly. It's all there. So we'll make sure that we put this there as well. And Scott, we will do a further Who is Scott Sickles? An episode. Yes. All on its own. Um, but as you were talking and as we're going back into soap operas, because I don't get to talk about soap operas, and it's really General Hospital that was my <laughs> big thing. And, and But in, what's cool about soap operas is, is that you also, the real life name of the person and the character, like it's just something that you kick in. You mentioned Jeannie Francis. Well, Jeannie yeah. Francis is, of course, Laura Spencer or yeah. Laura Collins today. I don't know those real life names of people on nighttime television. I, it's just something about the soap opera that mm. you just get that kick. But we were talking about the characters that disappeared and yeah. I don't remember the Rosalie character and I felt bad. I'm still yeah. thinking, I'm like, I don't know, but Chase is Look her up. You'll remember. She- we we're talking about the ones that went upstairs and never came back. What happened to Chase's parents? I wish I knew, um, but I imagine that they're busy. I, I I don't know. That that's the thing. So much is happening where I don't know what's actually going on with the casting or why we are or why we are not using uh, any particular actor. Why I ha- I have to say it is. I only knew uh, Kim Delaney from NYPD Blue. I didn't really watch her in other things, and mm-hmm. and so I love her as the new Jackie Templeton who was originally played by Demi Moore back in the day. And I, and of course, like Gonzo Gates made me gay. So (laughs) yeah, I've got, that's the thing. I've gotten to write for Gonzo Gonzo Gates and BJ McKay. So I'm like Gregory Harrison and Greg Evigan. I'm just like, oh my God, my entire gay childhood is just, oh my God. And I, again, I've not met either of them, but, but I didn't know that Greg Evigan was cast until he, he aired. I was like, oh my God, I've been writing for BJ McKay all this time. Where's the bear? Where's the monkey? But yeah, but I don't know where we have Chase's parents stowed away. I'm assuming that Jackie is no longer beholden to the invader. Yeah. Although I would hope that Sean would snatch her right up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that Gregory is back to teaching in-person classes. I don't know. Yes. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I would really love to know where they are. Another one of those things I'm perversely proud of. I got Gonzo Gates to use the word ergo. <laughs> so I just put that in the script. And I'm like, well, well, and here's something too for people who are listening who aren't General Hospital fans. Yeah, the <laughs> 1990s. People were watching The Nanny 
And now we have a new Cassidyne, or at least not a, a new person playing. Yes. And that person would be? Mr. Sheffield. Charles Shaughnessy. I was like, I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm writing for Charles Shaughnessy. And I'm just like, and I remember like way back when, and in the 90s, I'm like, oh, I'm not going to watch this stupid nanny show. And it was so funny. And he was just so charming. But I was watching an episode today, catching up. And at one point, I just have to have some, and I know that they'll cut it, but I put in a script at some point, someone asking him to just say Judy, because he sounds so much like Cary Grant. Yes. But, um, who, yes, I know, never actually said that. But but That's yeah, it. but yeah, I don't want to get it in the comments. But but yeah, I love that I'm writing for Charles Shaughnessy and that he's um, just such a, a delicious villain. It, it's just, it's too fun. Yeah, it, it's just incredible. A lot of people would look down upon the daytime serial, not understanding the complex yeah. and how difficult it is and the amount of script that each actor actress has to go through each day that on um, many times it's the first take that is what gets shown yeah. on the television anymore there's no time to really block things out and do things over and over again like they can do during the evening shows as well as no, the movies no. of mine my, my friend lisa gold who used to she used to host her own uh, own a, a company called Actors Connection in New York that helped a lot of actors get connected in the industry. And she, I'm giving her a, a by name shout out because when I was writing um, sample scripts for all my children, I couldn't discuss what was in the breakdowns, but I could ask her about the history of the show because she knew everything there was to know about all my children. And she was very helpful in me, like writing those early scripts. But she she loves the soaps, and she actually went, last time we went to the Emmy, she she went with me. And but she did say that people will complain to her about oh the acting is so bad, and she says acting on soap operas is not bad; it is unrehearsed. Yeah. And if you want to see the difference, if you watch Susan Lucci on All My Children, which is really fine, lovely soap opera acting because she's doing her vixen thing and she's doing it well, and she is iconic. But if you watch the difference between Susan Lucci on All My Children and Susan Lucci on Devious Maids, dear God, the woman is a comedy genius. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's just extraordinary, like what a little rehearsal can give to. to yeah. And, and it's so quick. I, I there, there are all these interviews with actors from soap operas who have gone on to other things where they note the the pace is so different, where they're on a set for hours waiting for setup. And here it's just set up, go, set up, go. I, I think that Jeff Cobert had said in, in an interview that, that he could not believe the pace at which we worked, that, that it was just fucking crazy. The pace we worked at I, he was from what I understand, from what I read, of course, uh, he was having a great time be being Cyrus Renault. And he's had some scenes since he was escorted off to jail. There's been scenes with him again. Oh, yeah. You're a, couple of months ahead. You're a couple months ahead of us, so I know you can't do any spoilers, but perhaps yeah. we'll see more of him in the future for some reasons. Perhaps. I can't imagine that we won't. I can't actually think. Well, I think the last time we wrote him, was when he told Laura that he ha had found God and that just aired. Yes. Who knows what's going to happen? Because that has to be bullshit. And I just am dying to find out how. And um, What if it wasn't? And maybe he has? No, he, he hasn't found God. That, not yeah, that he here. hasn't found God. Let's, uh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, um, 
but yeah, I just it, it, it's it, it is so much fun. That that's the the thing about soap opera and writing soap opera uh, and watching soap opera, even at its most serious, it has to be fun. Yeah, and even when you're writing something as tragic as uh, Baby Leah Mike dying or, or the death of Baby Gabriel, I wouldn't necessarily call that fun per se. But you have to be have passion for it. You have to have feeling for these characters. I, I read someone had complained that yeah, Sasha and Brando are pretty, but they serve no purpose. They don't have any story. They're just being there. And I'm like, okay, you're entitled to your opinion. But then Sasha gets trapped in that in, in the back room with Gladys. We haven't talked about Gladys yet. But she gets trapped and then the baby goes into distress. And, and then there's this horrible journey. And we are trying to put some comic relief in there. The woman stopping them in the hallway. It's, stop, you're the face of deception. Can I have a selfie? While they're on their way. And it's just, it is also about the perils of celebrity. But yeah, but we are trying to put in some humor and, and some interesting pathos. I think some of my favorite stuff, and I have no idea if I wrote this at all as a blur, but there were some gorgeous scenes between Brit and Epiphany during that story. And it's always great when enemies find a common ground. Nothing pleased me more than when um, when Blair and Taya become, became best friends when Taya thought she was dying way back on, on One Life to Live. Speaking of um, dying, and I... And talking about soap operas as the form, my mother's mom, woman who never watched TV or anything like that, she was not one of those ones to be entertained by anything on the boob tube, so to speak, was going through cancer treatments. And mm. my mom went to go live with her a couple hours away. And I showed up like I was a kid, junior high at that time, and they were just giggling away. And to hear my grandma and my mom giggling with each mm -hmm. other, but just giggling. And I go into the living room and they are watching Days of Our Lives. And this was during the time when Marlena was possessed. And there was a character, and because I never watched the show, but there's a character that had a doily on her head for however long period of time because she was hideously scarred. Mm -hmm. And my mom and my grandma would just kill themselves as the woman was looking in the screen with the doily on the face going, ow, ow. <laughs> and those were the moments when they could forget about what was real life. And I will always thank that show for having this absurd storyline, but that comedy just thrown in because it helped take the pain away from these two women who I loved and adored. And that's the medium. It's that escapism. And it's so important. It, it is escapism because at its most absurd, it's, it's problems you could never possibly have even by accident. And it can be very funny and it can be, it's at its best, I think. Someone once asked me, how can you tell if a soap opera is good? And I said, by how funny it is mm -hmm. and by how intentionally funny it is. I feel the same way about Tennessee Williams tragedies, though they're a very different animal. But, but it really is. And there's that wonderful section in Soap Opera Digest, Classic Lines, where it's all the comedy, the, the, the lines they found funniest. Um, 
on uh, on soaps that week and every time i look at it and something i've written isn't mentioned i'm affronted i take it very personally i don't even know if an episode of mine aired that week or not how dare they that's just me being arrogant i'm like i know that i gave you something i gave you gold but um, but, uh, but every now and then it the, something gets in there and it's always nice but but yeah it really is because whenever they're having problems they're either problems that you can relate to like Alexis's alcoholism and some of the beautiful stuff that aired about with her and Harmony on New Year's Eve. And, and, and or there are problems that are just so over the top and so melodramatic. And, and I like the way I like to describe it is you have to take something that could never happen and write it like it would happen on any given Tuesday. Yes. And yes. that's the whole Sunny Nina Carly triangle right now. Now, are you team Nina or team Carly? I want Sonny to just do something different than he had been for a while. And the Nixon Falls part probably lasted a little bit longer than one wanted, but it needed that because you had to get Carly and Jason back together. Yeah. I want the the character of Nina and mm. the actress Cynthia Watros yes. to just chew the scene and just have fun with the character and so i'm team nina simply because mm -hmm. i want her just to take the material and just go for it yeah and that's what i want to see because six months from now i want to see that epic cat fight that we're all waiting, waiting for it yeah the, there was an episode i i had scripted it and they changed a lot afterwards which they do it's fine but but there were a couple there were a couple of slaps in the where carly slapped nina and then she tried again and then nina caught the slap in the breakdown and that was in the script but it was changed for her. i think i think the whole like women slapping each other thing i think some people feel that it's tired meanwhile there was that great scene on behold on the beautiful i don't remember who the characters were but some one of the women slapped the other one and then slapped her again in the same scene i was like that is soap opera that's soap opera, opera. it's yeah it's part of it it's slapping people and there was and i'm like <laughs> there there are sometimes when i'm like how is elizabeth not slapping this person elizabeth slaps everyone but but yeah, I think we we move away from that that trope a bit. But I and there I may have written Nina a, a a little too cunty in that scene because I remember I had written her saying to to Carly something like, "Well, you know, I asked him time and time again if he wanted to know about his past, and he just didn't want to. He just didn't want to remember you." And I'm like. And maybe they were saving it for later, but, but yeah, but it was, they refined it to what they needed it to be for the story to move the way they wanted it to. And that's the interesting thing about writing for a show rather than writing for yourself is there is a lot of, you don't own the material. Yeah. It's not yours. I'm a gun for hire on that show for as long as they'll let me be that. And I, I don't take the changes too personally. I do wonder when something has changed completely. I, I asked one time, I'm like, everything I write for these two characters is getting changed. And I'm looking at the breakdown and it doesn't resemble the breakdown either. What's going on? And Elizabeth Cordy, our editor, she said, it's not you. And it's not the breakdown. One of the actors is they are displeased with their story. And unfortunately they're right. So we're just doing our best to, and it was, and it's good. It's good when I think people can voice their thoughts and the changes can be made all in the interest of making the show better. I'm not saying that you don't want too many cooks. No, and, but you know. there's legacy characters within these shows. And if they're looking at something going, wait a minute, that's 
that yeah. was my character 20 years ago. But since then, I've had these experiences as this character. Yeah, yeah. We, we all acknowledge that, that Alex Merrick recently <laughs> does not resemble Alex Merrick from decades ago. And I, I did my best. Um, yeah. To, and I do think it made it into the show where where, where uh, I had to have Anna acknowledge the extent to which Alex has changed over the years. Because, you know, who more than Finola Hughes would know the degree to which Alex has changed over the years? And yes. I was like, wasn't she, didn't she save Anna? And I did put it in and it did make it to air where it's way a long time ago. This is a woman who saved my life and whatever has happened in the interim now wants, now has her wanting me dead. And it's just like. I didn't acknowledge the past. Because we have to acknowledge the past. What, what am I? Watch. One of my favorite acknowledgements of the past in the breakdown, it had Kevin regaling Laura with, oh my God, with Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was in the breakdown. And and she had not never seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I was like, bah, 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 what was happening? And I looked up what was happening in 1982. And I was like, she was busy running through the jungle with Luke, I believe, at the time. Yeah. So, so the, just the line I gave her was, I was a little busy in 19... It was 1981. She's, I was a little busy in 1981. And it actually, soap opera die just made mention of the line. I was very pleased because I was just... That's a great... I love writing Laura and Kevin. And two great characters, and Ryan is also just uh, deliciously evil. But uh, writing, yeah, and I just, I just, this is news. But I just, I, I ran into John Lindstrom at a play a couple months ago, and he and his lovely wife Katie McLean were there, and he introduced me to to, to her. And in a couple weekends, of her theater co company is doing a reading of a bunch of short plays, and Katie asked me to submit, and they're doing one one of mine. That's really nice. So I finally, it's not the way I always wanted to, but it's still a way I, I'm loving that I'm finally sort of working with Katie McClain. So it's like, yeah, oh, and yeah. all that's all my children, Dixie. She was Dixie on All My Children, where she was the good girl, Dixie on All My Children, and she managed to make the good girl fascinating. And then she was Rosanna on As the World Turns, and it was just like, oh. Scott, why is it the fact that most of us can't remember our names? Like my husband yesterday, I couldn't uh -huh. remember his name. I've been married to him for years. I couldn't remember his name, but I could remember that Katie McLean's character's name was Dixie from All My Children, a show that I, I knew a little bit about, but I couldn't remember my own husband's name yesterday. Well, you know what? You see him every day and you don't need to call him by his name. You can, whereas Dixie, that's history. Yeah. That's history. After yeah. two years of being through this pandemic and being around each other all day, we just grunt at each other. And we're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's lucky you. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's been something, hey? We're going to have to wrap up at some point. You're going to be on General Hospital as a writer for many years because they can never get rid of the show. We know. I'll knock on all the wood. What is it about writing daytime soaps keeps you going? Oh, the salary. that That's a, a big thing. I, 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 and what's really great is that it's interesting because in terms of like television writing pay, it's terrible. It's really terrible. But but given the volume that we have to write, it's also quite awesome. And it really is divide. The division of labor is very different from like primetime shows. What keeps me going with it, why it's always fun is just because um, is the stories are fun. I'm, I'm lucky enough 
where I've gotten to write shows that I enjoy writing. And it's stuff that you, a long time ago, I, I felt this way. I feel less this way now. But I, it used to be like when you're trying to be the next Eugene O'Neill or whatever, uh, or the next Harvey Firestein, you're taking yourself dreadfully seriously. And on the soap opera, you get to write the outlandish stuff that you would never allow yourself to write in respectable terms. When one gets over oneself, what's really great is that the stuff that you're writing that's firing your imagination on the soap gets to fire your imagination in the other areas of art, and they trade off of one another. And the playwriting stuff helps you with the soap, and the soapy stuff helps you with the playwriting. And, and it's just when you get to write characters that you love, but really when you get to work with actors that you love too and i don't want to i i talked about the divas i don't want to to give the short end to to, to the uh, to the men on our show too who are also just tremendous like lindstrom and and james patrick stewart and and just all this whole bunch of care these great actors who are working on our show just can you have I don't think there's anything really more fun than writing for characters like Scotty Baldwin and Lisa Lobrecht. And, and I make a, they call each other, um, whenever I'm writing them, they call each other by German names that he pronounces with his very American accent. But I always have her refer to him as animals and him refer to her as food. And if that makes a dare, it makes a dare. If it doesn't, it's German. I don't remember what they're saying. But, but yeah, but it's just, it's fun. There are times when, um, like I'll end up turning in a script late because I spent too much time writing a set of scenes between two characters that was just, I was having too much fun with. So, yeah. And um, and that's what I remember from the 90s. And that was the big time, the golden age of, well, I shouldn't say the golden age because everybody thinks it's the Luke and Laura and sure. Ice Princess and all that. But the 90s General Hospital with Robin and Stone and the heart and yeah. uh, all of that's embrained and yeah. printed in my brain so much. But uh, yeah, it's that legacy. It's those characters that just mean so much. And I need to just jump in a little bit here because I'm glad I have you a quick way to write to you because uh, you did respond to me when I had a complaint that I know many Canadians have. When everybody refers to a place in Canada, it's always like Edmonton, Canada, Montreal, Canada. And, and we never go Los Angeles, United States. But it's always no. California, but it's Montreal, Quebec, Edmonton, Alberta. And you were very receptive when I was like, Scott. <laughs> I wish there was something that I, it, it was a change I could evoke. Yeah. Um, and I will hope, but yeah, but we always do Geneva, Switzerland. It's always um, town and country and, and never, ever the province. Paris. I don't know. And, it, and it's not just, uh, General Hospital, it's on all type of shows. No, it's it, it's, it's how we do things here in, in, in America. Yeah. Exactly. The I've, whole continent. I wrote down this note, and I'm going to come back to, uh, to this here as well. When we were talking about people, oh, the theatrics of daytime television is so over the top. And I'm like, I sat through the third season of Yellowstone that everybody loves, and I love it as well. I think everybody shoots each other on the streets in Montana. So if you can handle Yellowstone, everybody killing each other, 
you can handle daytime television. What if you have never dealt with someone with dissociative identity disorder or a demonic possession or anyone coming back from the dead, you should just count your blessings and shut up because some of us have to deal with that all the time. Yeah. I wanted to just say, like, I, I'm low on the totem pole, but there's part of me that if I were to ever be able to accept an award for our show, like at the WGAs where they give awards to news, it's just, we, we have to deal with something that's e things that are even crazier on the news, but we have to make this up. You just yes. have to report it. You just have to report yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, no, your crazy shit is already happening. We have to make this crazy shit up. That, that That's why we have like, um, Olivia Jerome trying to bring Duke, Duke back to life with Griffin in the chamber underneath. And that's the thing, it's job to be over the top. And that's what, like why I never understood Passions until it was too late. I didn't understand what Passions was trying to do. And I was just like, this is too much. It's just too much. And then when Georgia Engel showed up as a fairy godmother, I'm like, oh. Yeah. Oh. It, we all need that escapism. And yeah. I always go back to the fact that the U.S. government released files saying that UFOs are real and they exist. And we believe we've got footage of them here on Earth. And no news coverage about that because there's all these other real life things that are just over the top and strange. And yet the US government saying that UFOs and aliens may exist, not even part of the news cycle. Yeah. <laughs> but on soap operas, it's a good six month story. Well, oh yeah, well, every now and then we do mention, Lu what's it, Lumina. The, Lumina. Uh, yeah, Lumina. Casey, um, Casey the Alien. Casey the Alien. One time I put a Lumina reference in a script and it got cut because someone else also put a Lumina reference in their script. And they went with that one instead. And I was like, are you kidding me? And then we had that when Todd, whoops, again, Franco, was taking Elizabeth's kids to, to the park and they went to Lumina land. There's going to be so many people who don't watch Jenner Hospital soaps who are going to be totally confused right now. Look but it's okay up. because there's a lot of hidden soap fans who are going to be loving every single moment of this. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. And I, I love the Easter eggs that we put in for people. I used to, I, I used to love putting things in. I used to, I put in like lines from Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm -hmm. into the show it, well, every now and then. Depending on what we're watching, we'll just. You plop that in. I had lines from news radio in on One Life to Live because I was watching news radio. And yeah, and, and it, it's just, I, I wrote the line about that Carly had where she tells Drew that he and Elizabeth have a more longing looks than an Angel Buffy crossover. I'm like, yay, it made it. <laughs> it's it's so nice when when, you know, something that you enjoy that you put in there, like for shits and giggles actually makes it to air. And then it's also, there was one time when two actors who shall go nameless, who are both famous for ad-libbing or paraphrasing, actually did an entire scene of mine that was all banter. It was back and forth banter, and they did it verbatim, and I, like, watched it again and cried. I was like, oh, my God, they actually did it. But yeah. And Tim just make up their stuff along the way. They just did. They, they actually wrote it as written. <laughs> That's and read it, acted it as written. Yeah, it was uh, just yeah. I, and I, I actually want to be clear. It's with a lot. Of, I'm there for a short period of time compared to what they're doing. And if they're changing things, there's a very good chance that they know what their character would say better than I would. Although, though Nancy Legron uh, has, has told me she said, "If I ever am not letter perfect for you, it's an accident." So I'm like, "Thank you." She's a blessing. She's I a love blessing. her to pieces. I, yeah. Yep. Yeah.
love her. We, we, we chat. We, we like we we chatted at the Emmys a, a couple of times at, at the after parties, and um, yeah, I, I think I think she was surprised to find that I was less tolerant of supporters of our previous president than she was. <laughs> yeah. Well, that imagine yeah. imagine that. Hey, yeah, yeah I just. Yeah, I love her. He has no patience for them at all. <laughs> no, no. And, and I have less. <sighs> what you guys are doing down there. <sighs> yeah. Scott, I'm just going to remind everybody to, to go to your website. Yeah. www.scottcsickles.com. You can find out all about his plays, his monologues, what where everything's being produced. We will have Scott back and we'll do a focus on his life story, which is incredible. But we just, Scott, it's two o'clock in the morning for you. It's a little yeah. after midnight for me. So we just kind of got together and we just chatted. We just chatted. We just dished about soaps. We dished about soaps. And I never have before because I've always been this secret General Hospital fan. So there's always this little bit of giddiness in me that I'm like, I get to show that I know a little bit, and that's cool. So it's nice. I'm it was talk about it with you. Yeah, I'm outing myself as a General Hospital fan, and I'm good with it's that. Good it's a good Port thing Charles. to be, yeah. Port Charles, Port Charles University, and yeah, and the character of Brit and the actress who plays her. <laughs> yeah. She would turn me straight anytime. Oh my goodness! It's the, it's the eyebrows, the Natasha eyebrows. Oh, yeah, she's she is she's brilliant. And, and I love the fact that they're showing her human side. Yeah, um, yeah. Even Felix has acknowledged that maybe calling her the Brit was not the nicest thing. Exactly. But I will always remember little Emma Drake. Dressed in as her fairy princess with her little magic wand going, poof, you're gone. Ah, <laughs> oh, good stories, good stories. Scott, thank you so much for hanging out with me. This has been fantastic for everybody. Once again, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is an audio and visual podcast where we're introducing you to great people. And now you get to listen to... General Hospital and One Life to Live chat. And all is great. All is good. So everyone, on behalf of Scott, my name is Douglas Parsons. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. Until next time, everyone, be good and always text when you get home. Until next time, everybody. <laughs>